Let me read this, this scripture that we'll be um, looking at first. It's found in John 22, or chapter 220, 223 to 315. And this is a very familiar scripture. Um, anybody who has been church any length of time knows all about chapter 3 in the Gospel of John. Um, beginning at verse 23. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born after he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. This is an amen, amen, which means listen up. I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is, so it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can that be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of things we know. We testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How, then, will you believe if I speak of earthly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. It's a great privilege for me to, to share my thoughts with you today. Um, there are lots of rabbit trails coming out away from the line of, of thought that I'm going to be engaging in. And um, by the grace of God, I will stay off those rabbit trails and stick to the subject. And I was thinking today as I was getting dressed, you know, I can't remember the last time I put on the sport coat. I think it was the last time I spoke here, because I haven't been to any funerals since then. And um, I was reminded that, um, uh, for me, calories are not a casual acquaintance. They are bosom buddies. And perhaps some of you have had the same experience. The, um, the way to, to look at this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, I think, 
it's helpful to understand context. And the thought occurred to me, well, what, what, how do I explain what a context is? Well, let me tell you what it is not. It is not a, a smartphone communication from an inmate. The, um, is an understanding of a specific life situation. And um, I enjoy hearing people laugh, and uh, so I think about that an awful lot. And what do you what do you get when you have Miss Cleaney getting married to Mr. What's the big dealing? And it occurred to me what you have are um, opportunities to grow in grace. There are also teachable moments on why it's necessary to take off your shoes when you come into the house. And um, it's the context that is important to humor. It's a shared context that we have to connect with. If, if something's funny to me but not to you, then no one benefits, including me, and I, we've just explored that reality. Um, but life in a context produces a way of the way we see and encounter the world, our worldview, and it's an interactive thing. Uh, the, the context of the, the, that we're in, whether it's a family or work, Jeff talked about his work, uh, church, whatever it happens to be, we're, it's a context and we interact with it. We affect it and it affects us. And out of that, as we, as we are born into a particular family and, and a particular place, a particular um, values and ways of looking at things. We, it forms us in our, uh, the way we see and encounter reality. The, um, but we add to it, so every time we get a new person here in church, it changes the dynamics of the congregation. Every time someone leaves, it changes the dynamics of the con congregation. So having a, living in a context and having a worldview is dynamic. It's not static. It changes um, over a period of time. And we all live in many different contexts. And if you could put up the first slide, that would be helpful. Um, in order, this is the one with the three circles, right? Yeah. We all live in many contexts, and, and the three circles represent the innermost circle is me in my, con my place. The next circle is your family and close friends. The next circle is uh, the larger context, like the city, the state, the country, um, people that we may know um, on, on Facebook, for example, that you don't see. You, you encounter them. But we all live in many different contexts with our own, with ourselves at the center. And in order to communicate with other people, we have to reach out to the context they share with us. There is no communication except in a shared context. Um, if I only speak English and someone else only speaks, uh, let's say, Swahili, there's not going to be much communication. We have to have something in common, the most basic thing being uh, our, our language. 
Now, um, two examples of context that are largely incapable of being shared with someone who has, did not experience the particular event. Today is November 22nd, 2020. Does anybody here remember what they were doing 57 years ago at this time? This is 57 years ago, about this time, John Kennedy was assassinated. I think everybody who was alive at that time can tell you where they were, what they were doing, and who they were with. Someone who didn't experience that doesn't have a clue. They're just, okay, it's something in a history book. Another example of that is, do you know where you were at about the same time on September the 11th, 2001? Now that's a much larger context. More people know about that. Um, communication happens then, and this is, the, this is one of the important elements of what I'm trying to communicate today. Only happens when you share context, when you share a togetherness, if you will. Now, in our gospel reading today, there are three contexts. John wrote his gospel towards the end of the first century. By then, the other three gospels, and I would say all the letters from Paul and Peter, had been circulated around Asia Minor where his audience was. And those people were pretty much familiar with what, um, what was in them. John's context here is he's building a case for Jesus' divinity. So if you begin with John 1.1, we find him saying, in the beginning was the word, which is really quite remarkable if you think about it, because Genesis 1.1 starts the same way. In the beginning, God. John starts, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So he's, and then he goes on, and he shows that he asserts that the word is divine, Jesus is the word. He was identified as the Lamb of God by John the Baptist. He has authority to create water into wine. He has authority over the temple, because he, in chapter 2, we find him cleansing the temple. And... Uh, he introduces a little, some new material. There's, there's material in John's Gospel that we don't find in the synoptics. But basically, um, it's the same Jesus, the same plan of salvation, just presented a little different, different way. Now, Nicodemus brings with him a religious context. He brings with him a, a focus on the law, the prophets, um, mostly the Law and the Prophets, but most importantly, he, he brings to the, to the conversation the um, tradition of the elders. Now, the tradition of the elders was originally intended to be, I believe, a moral system that would help people obey the law. By Nicodemus' day, it had gotten completely out of hand, and he had uh, hundreds, if not thousands of rules, as Corey knows better than I do, people would have to obey, and that's what they were focused on. So Nicodemus 
taking this um, religious point of view with him into this conversation with the divine Messiah. And that's where his question comes from. Now just a couple examples that we find in the, in the scriptures about the focus of the um, Pharisees is uh, Matthew 15, 2. They ask Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Mark 7, 4 tells about the Pharisees. When they come in from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they, believe, and they observe many other traditions, such as washing cups, pitchers, and kettles. And Jesus' criticism of this is, well, you're focused on the outside, and you're not looking at what's on the inside. And Matthew um, 12, one, we have the same thing. He's saying to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. So they're tied up, they're bound up, they're prisoners of rules and regulations and shoulds and, and oughts and, and all of this sort of thing. And um, they found a way to, to, to make um, a name for themselves out of that. Now, Nicodemus basically is starting with Exodus. The Pharisees, if you, if you look at the, the, the conversations they have with Jesus, they seem to always start with Exodus rather than Genesis. Jesus, however, takes them back to Genesis. There was the question about divorce that one of the Pharisees asked him in Matthew 19. And Jesus says, no, you got it wrong. Go back to Genesis 1.27. In the beginning, God um, made them, I forget the exact wording of it, two in one flesh. And what, man, what God has joined together, let man not um, separate. The um, reading today from the Gospel uh, goes back to uh, Genesis as well. And I wanted us to, to see that in Jesus' perspective, this, this rule that, that he, God gave Adam and Eve actually gave it only to Adam, because he, he wasn't there at the time. But it applied to both of them, and they were one. They were supposed to be as one. But Jesus knew who he was. He was Emmanuel, God with us. He was the anointed one commissioned to preach the good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, and he was the one who was the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist proclaimed, who would die for the sins of the world. Um, so Jesus and Nicodemus were living in the same physical situation. They were both dealing with Roman occupation of Jerusalem. However, they had vastly different experiences of that than um, Jesus did as a, as a consequence of not sharing the same um, context. So if we want to look at the second slide, this is Genesis 2.17. This is the commandment that, that God gave Adam and also therefore to Eve. You must not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And they did. Um, they, uh, they uh, well, I'll get to that. But Jesus' starting point here in, in, in uh, is going to be this verse here. Eat of the 
eat the forbidden fruit and you will die. Um, and I interpret that to mean that God is telling them, don't decide for yourselves what's good and what's evil. Let me do that for you. I'll decide what's good and evil. You get to, to compare what's going on in your lives and the decisions that you make and the world at large. You get to compare that with good and bad. You, you should discern what's good and what's bad based on what is, I say is good and evil. But they, um, they strayed away from that, and as a consequence, they lost all the blessings, well, not all the blessings, but most of the blessings that God had provided for them. So if you want to look at the uh, third uh, slide, we see Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden. Now, what they, the most important thing they lost, the most precious thing, was their fellowship with God. Because we find that later in this chapter that God came in the cool of the evening to fellowship with them. But they had declared independence. They had decided we can decide for ourselves how we want to live, what we want to do, and um, that's uh, just how it's going to be. And of course, the first thing that they experienced after doing that was, well, the first thing they experienced was shame. And so they tried to hide their, their nakedness and they tried to hide from the Lord. And uh, consequently, they were no longer in fellowship because the fellowship that they enjoyed with God was not a natural realm of fellowship. It was a supernatural realm of spiritual um, fellowship with God. And um, they would communicate somehow with God and He with them. That's going to work in heaven. I, I don't really don't know because we will find every language ever conceived in the human, by the human race among the population in heaven. But somehow or another, there's going to be a way to communicate in the spirit with uh, with God and with each other. So, but they lost that, and. Um, what we find here is that God honored their decision to be independent from him, and he expelled them from the garden. He says, you will now have to build your own kingdom. Um, we do find that God has continuing interest and love for the human race. Genesis 3.15 tells us that God promised them a, a savior eventually. C.S. Lewis noted in one of his books that there are only two kinds of people in the world, in our world that we live in. Only two kinds of people. There are people who say to God, thy will be done. And there are people God says, to whom God says, your will be done, or have it your way. Um, if you read, if you know anything at all about history, even the history of the United States, you'll find that the kingdoms, on, all the kingdoms on the earth have been fatally flawed by the dual sins of self-will and unbelief. The history of Israel in the Old Testament, beginning with Judges um, and going all the way through 
to put up the next slide. It's helpful to me, this is not scripture truth, but this is a helpful way for me to understand what human beings are like. Um, there's the physical part, the flesh and blood, the stuff that we have, um, that we take care of so carefully, that we take to the doctor, that we nourish and make, and then that's physical flesh and blood. There's what I think of as the soul. We know that computers have operating systems that run everything. And I think of the soul as like an operating system that runs everything in the body. And I'm sure that's simplistic, but uh, it's helpful to me. Then there's the spirit. The spirit is the cognitive functioning of the brain. It's what doesn't happen without the brain, but somehow it's very different from the brain. The cognitive function of the brain is the capacity to make decisions. And um, the old, the middle-aged philosophers called that um, intellect and will. We know and we choose. Um, they overlap. One dimension can affect another. What's going on with my body easily affects what's going on in my emotions and vice versa. There's a whole area of medicine um, that addresses that. A psychosomatic illness that something is wrong with the body because of thought patterns in our minds. And there is some things that affect our, our perceptions that will affect our body. And, um, and our emotions. And uh, I used to work with a young woman who was um, deathly afraid of, of uh, anything that looked like a snake. And uh, so she would see, see something on the sidewalk. It was worms after the brain, and she was afraid of it. Um, if you go into a, a reptile exhibit at a zoo, you want to make sure that the, uh, the glass is there. Otherwise, we would, um, most of us would leave. Um, the empty triangle in the middle, for me, represents the, the center of a person or the heart or who I am. Um, it's the place where the Holy Spirit brings the divine life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It can be hardened so that you cannot, um, the Holy Spirit cannot get in. We have an example of that Pharaoh, who refused to obey the word of the Lord through Moses, and that's in Exodus 8.32. This time, it says, but this time Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. And the conversations with Pharaoh began with a legitimate question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And then Moses demonstrated that, and we get to this point where Pharaoh closed the book and said, I am not going to listen to you and obey the Lord. We can do that. We all can do that. We have the freedom to harden our hearts. Um, but when that happens, when we're closing out the um, Holy Spirit, then we're living purely on the natural level and only on, if we're at all inclined, only on the religious level. So on the next slide, we see the question that Nicodemus asked Jesus. Actually, it's a statement. 
says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher that has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. And this really wasn't correct because John the Baptist had been uh, preaching and the um, Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, had sent representatives down to the river to talk to John the Baptist and um, John the Baptist denounced them as, as unbelievers and um, they were not at all pleased with Jesus after his having cleaned up the, uh, the vendors from the temple and they made a lot of money off of those uh, vendors during, this, during, the, uh, um, during that week. So he's being polite, he's being politi politically correct, if you will. And he wants to engage in a conversation. And Jesus can't go there because he can't communicate with Nicodemus on that level. Nicodemus had seen the miracles. Okay, what do the miracles mean? Maybe that's why he was there. But Jesus answers the question that Nicodemus has yet to ask by saying, on the sixth slide, I tell you the truth, no man, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, which also means born from above. Um, means that no one can interact with, in any way, with the Trinitarian God without sharing in the life of God. The life of God is, is the context. The, um, we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a unity, in a dynamic unity of love. And we are, as, as human beings, we are invited to enter into that relationship and allow the Holy Spirit to bring that life into the center of our being, that empty spot that we saw in the other slide. Um, and you find, if you look in other places, you can, it talks about people being dead in their trespasses and sin. And in the first, first chapter of John talks about um, people who prefer darkness to light. And you know, it's in many, many places where it talks about being dead, even though you're alive. Um, in John 14, 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will be my teaching. Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And um, he says, we will come and make your home with you. Where? In my apartment or my house or my living room? No. Right inside. Um, how God does it, I don't know. Um, but that's what he says will happen. And he says that in Revelation 3.20, as I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and eat with me again. There's that restored fellowship. The writer of Revelation is saying, you have to open the door. He's not going to knock it down. Um, you have to open the door. So Jesus, Jesus is trying to explain this to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is still on the natural religious level, and he says, uh, how can this be? You know, no one can be born twice. 
And then Jesus goes on and explains the um, difference between flesh and spirit. What is born of spirit is spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh. On the eighth slide, Jesus continues with a specific revelation. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him have eternal life. Now perhaps you remember the incident in, in um, oh, where was that? Um, I didn't write it down and I don't remember, but it was in the desert. And the Israelites were offended at God one more time. And um, they were complaining against Moses, against um, God, and he sent some servants to um, in their midst, deadly serpents, and they started biting people and they started dying. And they went to Moses and said, Help us out, we don't want to die. We've got all these serpents here. And so Moses took the case to God and he said, Have mercy on them again. And so God said, Well, here's what you do put a brass snake on a pole, hold it up, and everyone who looks at it will be healed. Okay. So we have a group of people under the sentence of death, if you will, who, if they will be obedient to the word of God spoken to them through Moses, will be healed. So we have them obeying the word of God and receiving back from God the blessing of healing. And this is an analogy to what Jesus did on the cross. He was lifted up. He says that right here. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Lifted up on the cross in, in the not too distant future. Um, and it promises that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Faith in God is loyalty to Jesus. What God asked Adam, and through Adam, Eve, what he asked of them was loyalty. God knew that, that Satan was in the world. He knew the fallen angels were there. This had happened long before Adam and Eve. And he wanted them to be loyal and believe his, him and be obedient to him. Now, if you think about it, um, faith always involves obedience. Something as simple as going to an office building and getting on an elevator includes both faith and obedience. I remember uh, years ago when the kids were young, we went to Chicago and uh, we went to what was then the Sears Tower. I don't know what it's called today, but it goes way up. And so uh, we uh, got on an elevator, in one of the non-stop elevators, and, and I'll tell you, that that's weird when you feel your ears popping around the 50th floor. But we had to have faith that the elevator was safe enough to get us to the top floor. And we had to get on the elevator, we had to be obedient to that faith to get there. We could have said to ourselves, no, I don't believe that elevator is safe, and we wouldn't get out. Well, we'd never get to the top floor. So, and if you think about that, everyday life, the things that we do are, represent obedience to faith in something or someone. Okay? So just, that's how the world is structured. 
ninth slide, we find Jesus breathing the Holy Spirit into his disciples. Now this is an interesting event. Again, John is, is, um, is um, writing to people who, who knew all about Pentecost and Peter's sermon and, and uh, all the people who were, were saved. They all know about that. But John is telling them that something happened in the upper room. And what happened in the upper room was that Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on them. Now my understanding of that, which is, is uh, certainly something you're free to disagree with, but um, my understanding of that is that's when they become born again. And that what happened on Pentecost was an empowerment. And because Jesus told them, stay here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes with power from on high. So at that point, the, um, the Holy Spirit came to those disciples who were in the room. And what I noticed is that between um, then, then and the, uh, and Jesus went back to heaven, between then and Pentecost, they managed to get along with one another. Even as late as the Last Supper, they were still competing for a position in the kingdom. And um, he breathed the Holy Spirit into them. And that, I believe, happens to each of us when we are born again. It happens to, um, to us when we somehow connect. You know, Paul tells us that salvation is a gift of God. But to me, salvation is the restoration of that, that life that was there with Adam and Eve, of fellowship with Almighty God. It was a, um, somehow or another, I can suddenly communicate with God and He with me. And I remember, um, I'm not going to go into my, my story, but um, I remember suddenly being aware that God was speaking to me through the scriptures. Now in the ninth, tenth slide, how do we see the kingdom of God after we are born again? Now everybody here and everybody who um, names the name of Jesus as Savior will, will say that God is in charge of everything. We say that Jesus uh, has the whole world in his hands. And when I was younger, there was a song about that. It's got the whole world in his hands. And I forget who made it popular, but it was a popular song. He's got the whole world in his hands. The whole wide world. Well, if any of us were asked, do you believe that? We would say, yes, we believe that. Okay. Um, we, can, we can believe that... Um, I can believe that my car is silver and my wife's car is red, but it really doesn't make much difference to us until we connect with that somehow in a vital way. Um, we are now in the midst of a crisis in America. Um, we have two things going on. Mostly we have uh, the coronavirus, there are many people who are controlled by fear of the virus. Some are afraid of the disease and death. 
Others who are not afraid of the virus are afraid that we might lose or could well lose the freedoms guaranteed by the Bill of Rights. As born-again believers, it's inappropriate for us to be afraid of either one of those things. Just from history, in the first century there was a plague in the Roman Empire that killed millions of people. It was the Christians who went out and ministered to those people. Some of them died, some of them didn't, but they gave a, a tremendous testimony to the, uh, to the people around them and their neighbors. Um, the time that Paul was writing his letters, the king was Nero.
Now, in the other picture here, there's a picture of clouds. And in it, there is a figure that resembles Christ. So the question here is, what do you see in the this, in this second picture? And to answer that, let me tell you a story about my dog. Um, I, was, I had a dog I was very, very attached to that died in 2012. And I was very distraught about it. And towards the end of 2012, beginning of 2013, we adopted a rescue dog from a rescue kennel whose name is Simone. And Simone had been badly abused when she was, uh, had a severe anxiety disorder. So we took, gave her lots of tender loving care, never were, were never able to housebreak her, so we had to just change some things around the house to, to accommodate her. And we've become quite attached to her. And she's gotten better over the years. Recently, I suspected she had cancer. So I took her to the vet, and the vet confirmed, yes, she has breast cancer, and she has peripheral neuropathy, two very serious conditions. Plus, she's older than what we thought she was. She is uh, probably 14-ish, something like that, 14, 15, something like that. And we were thinking she was younger than that. So he says, I can't, normally we would, we would remove that surgically, but she's too old for anesthesia. Well, she also had a growth on her right, lower right eyelid, and I'd been watching it grow, and it was growing down. And he says, well, what can you do about that? And he says, well, normally what we would do is we would do surgery and remove it. And the problem with that is the, the anesthesia. So we agreed that I would watch her, watch that, and uh, keep track of it, and get back to them if there were any signs of, of difficulties in the eyes. Well, it started growing to her eyeballs, and the eyeball, and I was very concerned that it might touch her eyeball, which would be very bad for her because she would probably try to do something about it and injure herself. So I took her back and he said, well, we can, I can snip it off without anesthesia. It'll only take a moment and um, she'll, she'll very likely have a lot, a lot of short-lived pain and she'll probably be very, very angry at me afterwards. I said, well, it has to be done, and we don't want to do anesthesia, so go ahead. So there were four of us in the room, and uh, he had two assistants come in, put a muzzle on her, lifted her up on the table. They held her down, and I put my hand on her and, and prayed for her while that happened. And um, it was over in a moment. No reaction at all from the door. It, it bled, and they put a, a pressure pack on the eye and a bleeding stop. And so he says, I want you to wait 30 minutes just to make sure the bleeding doesn't start again. And I said, okay, so we went in the lobby and the, uh, after a little while the vet came in, he sat down and for all practical purposes, you look at the dog, it's like nothing happened. And this is a dog with an anxiety disorder. And he sat down and he said, Simone, you're a lot braver than I am. 
And I got to thinking about that afterwards, and I thought, no, she's not a brave dog. I can't get her out in the yard when the, when the neighbor's out in their yard. I have to shove her through the door. She's not brave. Well, what happened then? No pain. No pain. I had prayed the day that I got the diagnosis that God would shield her from pain. So when I saw Jesus in the clouds, I saw an answer to prayer. He only saw the clouds because he was functioning on the natural level. He didn't know about my contact, my conversation with God about this dawn. And we have that choice before us today and every day for a period of time yet to come. We're going to, if you listen to the news at all, you're going to hear some awful things coming off, you know, out of the news and all these people getting sick and all these people getting dying and, and uh, the election and all the turmoil with that. But I believe that for us, that's irrelevant. What might happen is totally under the control of God. What needs to happen for me and for all of us is we need to learn to trust him for it. Trust him with the outcomes. We're responsible for the process. The process is trust, obedience. So I want to close with a short prayer, invite any of you to silently follow along with me. And um, so let's pray. We thank you, Father God, that you have given us Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you have shed your blood on the cross so that we might enjoy fellowship with the Father. We thank you that you are in charge and that there is nothing that can come into our lives apart from you allowing it, apart from your purposing it. And we believe you, and you promised through the Apostle Paul, that all things work together for our good, our eternal good. Not perhaps, perhaps not for our immediate good, but for our eternal good. We thank you for that. And your word promises that if we will take our, our cares into you and lay them down in your presence, that you will give us peace. So we ask you for two things today. We ask you for the faith to lay things down in your presence. And we ask you to keep your promise to give us that peace that passes understanding. Amen.